Welcome to Quotable, a female millennial entrepreneur podcast, the show by and for female millennial entrepreneurs who are building and running thriving, successful businesses while living life to the fullest. I'm your host, Alessandra Polina. I'm so happy to have Karen Desort on here today. She's an attorney and the founder of Not Your Father's Lawyer, which is a really awesome company that I guess, well, I'll let you describe it, Karen, but um, (laughs) I've had the pleasure of working with her in the past and recommending people and think it's just what you're doing is amazing for small businesses, business owners who otherwise have no idea where to get started with a lawyer or any of that legal stuff. So I'm so happy to have you on today. yeah, and tell us so tell much. us what it's all about. Yeah, um, I mean, I started. I actually kind of started not your father's lawyer on accident. It was meant to really be kind of an outlet for me as a, I guess, a blog is what I intended it to be when I was a first year attorney. I just I didn't like the way that the firm I worked for communicated to clients, and I kind of had a vision for a different way of of creating access to information. So I started, you know, the idea of not your father's lawyer came from the kind of shirking that old school model um, that people think about the, you know, mahogany desk and the high rise and the fancy lawyer that charges hundreds of dollars an hour. And so it was supposed Mm -hmm. to kind of just be this approachable access to information for small businesses. That's what I did, even in the law firm that I worked for for the first half of my career, I, I worked in a corporate and securities firm. So we worked with anything from small businesses and entrepreneurs to, you know, raising millions of dollars for companies, taking companies public. Um, but the, the small business kind of sector was what I really was passionate about. And that's kind of how it began. But then friends and family started, you know, they knew I did that on the side and I kind of blogged and they'd be like, oh, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And like any good entrepreneur, I did a lot of stuff for free when I started because it's like, oh, I don't know, should I charge my cousin for, you know, helping him get a trademark? And, and it felt kind of like, am I doing this right if I'm working in the firm and I'm not bringing them through the firm? So I did a lot of work for free for friends and family. Um, but it was fun because I could kind of do whatever I wanted and not what the, you know, what I was assigned in the law firm. Mm-hmm. And then the business kind of kept growing and growing on the side while I'm building this corporate career. And by about 2018, I was basically running a full-time business on top of my senior level job in corporate America, which was <laughs> crazy. And I had two little kids. So um, I kind of had to make a decision and I'm really a planner and I'm super type A, which many lawyers are, but I wasn't going to just like jump. People were like, just leave, just leave. And I was like, I, I can't do that. You know, I have this job and, and these golden handcuffs and can I make enough money? And what if I don't like it? And so I kind of made a plan and I set a date like a year in advance. And I said, you know, I'm going to save this much money. I'm going to do this much in, you know, on average in a month to create. And so when I finally took the leap, it certainly was like one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. But I had kind of that safety net that I had built by planning ahead of time. Um, and it was really hard because to be honest, I was always a, a corporate ladder climber and leaving the corporate world to pursue my own business actually really felt like failure to me. And that's really hard for people, especially in the entre- entrepreneurial world to understand because I felt like, you know, if I can't make it in the corporate world and I'm kind of, I'm moving into my own business because I, I wanted more, flexibility. I wanted to have a successful career, but also be a present mom. 
And so it felt a little bit like failure. Even when I put my Mm -hmm. notice in um, at the company I worked for, people, it was just, it's an old school industry, you know, it's an old boys club and people literally, even though I told them I've started this business and by then it was really successful and they said, Oh, you're going to be a stay at home mom. And I thought, (sighs) what kind of response is that? But it took me a while to get over that and realize that, Hey, it's really none of their business, you know, what I was leaving for, but also that, you know, that my success in, in my career didn't have to hinge on the opinions of people in the corporate world, but that took a long time. Um, you know, that that's their burden to bear, not mine. Oh yeah, totally. I can't believe you would say it should be a stay at home mom when you said you had a business. That's so frustrating. I hate that. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I think that's so not, not a failure to be able to have built up a successful business <laughs> while working somewhere else full time and being able to leave that so that you can have the flexibility that you want. That's like dream come true. I feel like so totally. I mean, today I feel that way, but at the time it, it took a while to kind of see that for what it was and, and not for kind of what I, it was just a different, it was a different path than I expected. You know, I thought I was going to be that corporate ladder climber. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so, so was it mostly, it it was just like the business on your business on the side was becoming kind of so successful that it just didn't fully make sense (laughs) to be doing both. Yeah. I mean, by the time I left, I was working between 70 and 90 hours a week because I had my, you know, senior level full-time job that I was working at least 50, 55 hours a week. And I was putting, you know, anywhere from like 20 to 40 hours a week in after hours, I would wake up early and work before work. I'd stay up late. I'd take a, you know, if I took a lunch break on my job, I'd bring my laptop and try to get stuff done and I'd work all weekend. And I thought like, this is like, this is not what I intended at all, you know, too much. Absolutely. So it must've been incredible once you quit. And Definitely. like you're only doing your own thing. You probably, that must've been an adjustment though. Like you must've felt like you had tons of free time, even though I feel like as a business owner, essentially still a full-time business owner and a mom of two kids, you probably still had no free time, but it must've felt a lot better than having to go into the office every day. It did. You know, there were pros and cons. I actually, I always kind of, I didn't think of myself as needing, you know, an office kind of not like a, water cooler chatterbox kind of person. Mm-hmm. I was more like, you know, especially I think a lot of working moms are like this. We're kind of as efficient as we can be because we mm-hmm. have to leave at a certain time because the daycare closes and all of that. But I I was really lonely when I first started. Um is just hard. And I'm definitely I'm still working out how I do it because I'm not exact I mean well right now I'm not doing any public, you know, work out of yeah. the house. But I'm not like a coffee shop worker. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, there's a give and take obviously, but it, it certainly, I mean, my time was filled. We joked that, you know, three weeks into my new non-corporate world, you know, I had dropped one job and I thought like, great, I got, you know, 50 to 60 hours of my week back, especially if you count my commute. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why am I working full time around the clock? I'm so busy. Where did, like, where did all that time go? Um, but it, it filled in pretty quickly. It fills in. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, so what, um, like a major differences between what you were doing for whatever other company you were working for and what you do for yourself now, like in terms of the type of day to day, are you doing similar type of work? Are you offering pretty different services 
to current clients? Like, what does that look like? What you're, what you're doing now, I guess. So, I mean, the main difference of what I do now and what I built in this business versus the traditional firm that I worked for is that I do everything flat fee. So most people think of a lawyer, they call, they say, I need this or that. The lawyer says it's, you know, $2,000 retainer and my hours, you know, I bill $350 an hour. I mean, in places like Southern California, Mm -hmm. where I live, it's, you know, $800 an hour. Oh my gosh. So so a normal person like me (laughs) is like, wow, so I could just never afford to have a lawyer do anything for me. Like, what can I even do? I mean, that's why I found, that's why I, what I found so appealing when I found you, I was like, oh, flat fee. Like I can actually know what to expect. Like, I don't even care what the fee is, but knowing, cause like I have no (laughs) idea how many hours something is going to take. So how would I even like budget a certain hourly type of thing? Sure. I mean, and the, and the big thing about the way that the law works. And there's a lot of other billable hour uh, models like accounting is like that. There's certain kinds of professional services that, that do the billable hour model. But what happens is, you know, maybe you can say, okay, it can, it's probably going to take them, you know, three hours to draft this contract for me. So I can guess that it's going to cost about this much money. But then it's like, if you pick up the phone to call them, you didn't realize, but then they build you six minutes for that. And if Mm. you sent an email, they build you six minutes for that. And they built you six minutes for their response. And so all of a sudden, this kind of starts to nickel and dime you. And it turns people off, especially small businesses and entrepreneurs. So that was kind of the big thing that I wanted to, I wanted to create some certainty. You know, there's people, not just that small businesses are on a budget. Some of them are and some of them aren't, frankly, depending on what they're doing. But entrepreneurs are agile and they're innovative and, and they don't want the old school model all the time. And you know, they don't need to have a, you know, 22 page contract because that's not what works in their business. And so to be able to offer services on my terms, the way I want to, um, I have the old managing partner at my firm, like couldn't believe that I get clients from social media. He just cannot wrap Mm -hmm. his head around that. Like, how do you even talk to them? You can you DM them? Is that attorney client privileged, you know, and and it's like they're not they're focused too much on the old model and not on meeting their clients where they are. So that was kind of the big thing. And the other major thing that affects my ability to provide affordable services is that everything I do is virtual. So you're not coming to meet me in an office, but I don't have to pass that cost on to my clients. So my clients know, I mean for the most part we meet online or by the phone or via email and here and there where I need to meet somebody in person we can meet at a Starbucks, we can meet, you know, we can rent a conference room if it's a big transaction that needs to be done. But those are options that create a level of affordability that just didn't exist in the old school model. Oh, yeah, no, that makes total sense. You're you're scraping away all that overhead that you could have. So what are, what do you find like in the businesses that you've been working with mostly since since then, like, what are the, some of the main struggles that business owners have when it comes to legal? Like, <laughs> I, I, maybe that's a big question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it is. I think that, like, the big kind of global issue is that small business owners tend to be afraid of what they don't know. Mm-hmm. They feel it feels overwhelming. It feels complicated. You know, the legal industry it hasn't made it easy for entrepreneurs and small businesses either. The traditional legal model, like we talked about with those high retainers and the exorbitant billable hours, it makes it really difficult to get access to information. So Mm -hmm. they're kind of left in the dark. And I think that 
Um, it doesn't have to be that way. I always tell business owners, I mean, there's the law and, and understanding how to make things legal and how to protect you. But you can also ask yourself common sense questions as you go along. Like you don't need to know everything all the time and, and you're not expected to. But you can ask yourself at each stage, you know, what does my business need in this moment? So an example is, you know, if you're just starting out, ask yourself like, you know, what are those entities that are out there? Do I need to form an LLC or a corporation? Can I operate this as a sole proprietor? What are the pros and cons? How much does it cost? Can I change it, you know, as I Mm -hmm. go? And those are questions you can kind of ask yourself and find information out there because I'm not the only one doing this. This is, I wasn't the first person to come up with this legal model. There's a lot of, especially kind of millennial and younger attorneys that are trying to meet millennial entrepreneurs where they are and and provide access to that information. So if you kind of go through the motions and ask yourself, you know, if you're engaging a client, what are the main things you need to agree on? Like, you know, price and term and scope of work, who owns intellectual property, you know, what rights does the other party have to the intellectual property? Those are things that you can kind of think through in a, let's call it a non-legal, just a kind of a common sense way, but that Mm -hmm. can kind of put you on your path to understanding what legalities might affect you and how to kind of go about filling in the gaps there. Yeah. So that was going to be one of my other questions was (laughs) like, what are some of the biggest or the most important like legal documents that we should have in place, like for kind of generally speaking for businesses. So, I mean, obviously that depends on what you're doing and and who your clients are and how you're (laughs) working with them, but are there like a couple of things that people usually do need or like a couple of things that like, I know you have a lot of resources on your website where people can kind of like buy a certain contract or document or something like that? Like, are there certain ones that are kind of like the biggest ones that people do need or use a lot that people should maybe think about if they're, if they haven't gotten any of these in place? Totally. So, and I always say this, this really, this kind of exercise the mental exercise applies to people. It doesn't matter if you're just starting out or you've been operating. I mean, I've worked with clients who operated for a decade without a contract, but then something kind of went awry and they realized, oh yeah, guess I need a contract now. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you can't do it. So you hit the nail on the head and lawyers love to say this. And I kind of giggle every time I say it, but it really depends. Mm -hmm. And so it depends on what you're doing. Every business is different, but in general, you want to think about how you're set up and what it takes to properly maintain it. People do this all the time. I set up my LLC. Yay. But you have to maintain it. There are things you have to do to ensure that you're actually formed correctly and operating correctly. And that's what creates that limited liability that an LLC can benefit, you know, a small business Mm. for. So those are things that you have to ask. You have to kind of think about your client interactions or your customers, you know, do you have the right agreement set up with, with them? Do you work with vendors? Do you have like proper terms and conditions for them? If you work with employees or contractors, do you have everything set up? How and when do you protect your intellectual property? And then what systems are in place as you grow? Um, Because as you grow, you know, the the pain points can get bigger when you get bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there aren't definitive answers like that you could just generalize, but those are kind of the main areas that you want to think about. And then it doesn't hurt to have an accountant and a lawyer on speed dial so that you have access to information as you go. And I think that when you spend time and sometimes money early on to get like a proper accounting system in place. I mean, that is so important first and foremost, because it can 
minimize your own personal tax liability, but also something that I've seen that small businesses really don't think about when they're starting out is if you grow it and then somebody wants to purchase it or invest in it, but I've seen deals fall apart because their books were a mess and they just didn't think, they didn't think it was necessary. They were just Mm -hmm. operating in their happy little small business world. Um, So those are really important systems to get in place at the outset. And then also if you take on contractors and employees, your liability starts to grow because people are operating on behalf of your business and you can't control people as well. So having company policies and like an official employee handbook to protect your company culture, to create uniformity, it protects you against kind of inconsistent inconsistent policies that can get you in trouble. Those are kind of things that people want to think about as they're growing. Totally. So do you help with all of those kinds of things? Yeah. I mean, short of the tax and accounting stuff, I'm not a tax expert, but but like, but like even like employee handbook type of Uh things and stuff like that. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. And what about, um, like, so say somebody is like trying to set up an LLC, you caught my interest there when you said there are other, the other things that you need to do to kind of keep up with that and stay (laughs) compliant and whatever. Like, do you do do you yeah. help people with all of that stuff? I do. That sounds awesome. So there's, there's two versions. I like to say I have like the full DIY clients that want to basically cut costs as much as they can. And I'm kind of like the information sharer. Like he, when I set up an LLC for a client, I include a maintenance checklist. So it's like, you don't want me to send you emails and do all your filings. No problem. But here are things to think about when you do this, when you do that. Right. So a lot of small businesses, for example, don't have employees when they start, Mm -hmm. but maybe they grow and they hire an employee and they didn't realize that they have to register with the employment department of their state. And this happens a lot with online businesses. They have virtual employees. Mm -hmm. Um, People usually go with contractors. It's very complicated contract. People are very often misclassified as independent contractors instead of employees. And it's important if you can to make sure that you know, you know, what to work with the lawyer and make sure that you know you're classifying them correctly. But those are their complexities about running an online business that didn't really exist if you had just kind of like your local office and you hire somebody to show up. Because if you're working with people out of state, you actually have to register with the employment department in that state. And are you paying mm-hmm. the taxes right and all of those things. So those are things to consider. Um, people miss business licenses a lot that every county is different. So certain counties or cities require a general business license, which means even if you operate online, even if you don't have an office, even if you're completely virtual, that you still need a business license. Mm -hmm. And then some don't, they only need business license for certain types of businesses like, you know, daycares and a barbershop and things that require kind of more permits from the local city. But most people forget, completely forget about even looking at that. So those are kind of things that you talk about kind of maintenance items. And then every state is different, but depending on the type of entity you have, you have certain state filing requirements. So maybe it's like an annual report um, where you file every year, every other year. Like I said, every state is a little bit different, but those are things that people kind of forget about. Yeah. Yeah. It gets complicated, but it sounds like it sounds like working with people remotely from all over the place means that it's more complicated for you too. Because if you had like a regular, you know, a, an, a physical office, then you only worked with people who were going to walk into your office. They'd all be following kind of the same rules for that county or whatever. And you kind of have to be aware of what the rules are now for anyone, anywhere, if you're working yeah. with people from all over the place. So that sounds 
a little more complicated on your end too. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, it's fun because, you know, it's interesting how different states and counties and even countries apply things differently. I work with a lot of clients that work with overseas contractors and they want to know, you know, am I supposed to be withholding taxes? Am I, do I have to file anything to the IRS for somebody that works in England, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and those are things, but that's exactly the concept that we were talking about is you ask the questions, right? You're not expected to become the expert and know it, but you can ask yourself those questions as they come up in your business Mm -hmm. uh, and then find the answers. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. I mean, yeah, I think it's just, it just feels like a lot (laughs) for a business (laughs) owner. Like, because as you said, it's like a big black hole. It's like, where do I even start? How do I even know what to do? Like, I don't know. I feel like I I can't even imagine what you do, but it also seems like you're such a lifesaver for people who (laughs) can work with you because it's funny that you say that because I always joke that I'm not saving lives. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it probably feels like it for some people. No, that's, I mean, it's huge because it's like, you want to do everything right when it comes to that stuff. And it's hard to even know if you're knowing what to look up. Like, as you said, like you have to just kind of figure out what to, how to educate yourself and what you might need and and what you should do. But, um, are there like one or two things that you would say? And again, I know it's like different, totally different depending on your situation, but like for people listening to this, if we're like, gosh, I should probably look into this, see what I should do legally, make sure everything is set for my business. Are there like one or two things that you would say people could do like right now as they're listening to this or later today after listening to this episode where they could feel like they've taken a step to definitely get a little bit whatever, like a little prepared or figured out or <laughs> sorted out yeah. legally? So these are some, I, I know it sounds complicated. I'm, I'm like, it's so easy. And then it's super <laughs> complicated if you have people, you know, contractors out of state. And, but it is, there are simple things that people can do to take action to create protections for themselves. So one that is missed so much. If you do not have a privacy policy on your website, get one now. It's legally required on every US website. And I get this question mm-hmm. a lot, but mine's just an informational website. You can't do anything. Do you collect an email address? Do you have Google Analytics on your account? Do you have a you know Facebook pixel? If you, I mean, literally every, it's the legal, it's the law. So just get one. But okay. also- when you collect those things, you are required under the law to tell people how you collect it, what you're doing with it, how you're protecting it, you know? And so it's not, I think people think about it like, well, I'm not collecting credit card information and I'm not, I mean, and many people are frankly. Mm -hmm. So those things have to be included. And although terms of use or terms of service or terms and conditions, they all mean the same thing. They're not legally required, at least right now, but I recommend everybody have them because you want to have policies that make it clear about how people can use your site, you know, what they can take from it. Um, Especially if you're, you know, if you're selling anything, either digital products or physical products, you definitely should have your terms and conditions. If you have any sort of online community that has like user generated content, it's really important to protect yourself. So that's one thing that you should do. Um, But definitely start with the privacy policy. I can't tell you how many even like pretty good sized websites I've seen without a privacy policy. Yeah, that's a really good point. We should all go check. And you have one, right? You have a template for that on your website. Okay. I happen to know. I have a template. Yes. Um, If you don't have a contract or if you have one, but you haven't worked through it in a while, look back at it. 
think about your offerings, think about how you operate your business, how you interact with your clients, and either write a contract or update a contract to cover how you're currently running those client relationships. I see this a lot where sometimes people do work with a lawyer, but it's been six years and they do something Mm. completely different. And it's not, you know, they haven't covered the new way that they, even little things like, oh, I used to take payment by check, but now I'd only take payment by, you know, Square and PayPal or whatever. And it's like, it's not, it's not like written the right way, you know, so little things like that um, to kind of just review what you already have or create it if you don't have it. And then the other thing that I tell people, if you don't have a trademark and if you've never even like looked to think about what's out there related to your brand, run yourself a quick search on Google and social media. And if you feel brave and want to try it, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, give it a Mm. shot. See what comes up when you search for your name or similar names to your brand and see what's out there. If you have a registered trademark and there's a potential conflict, if you want to keep your trademark protection, you have to send a cease and desist and tell those people to stop. If you don't have a trademark and you see things that are uh, a registered trademark, I should say, registered with the USPTO, and you see other things that might be in conflict, it might be time to talk to an attorney figure out who was first in time. Does it make sense to file a trademark? And if you don't have a mark or if you've like, you've never thought about it, assess whether it's a good idea to protect it and, or make changes. Sometimes people do this search and they're like, Oh shoot, I didn't know that, you know, Jenna Kutcher had a similar name. I might be in, in hot water here. Then like, it's never too late to change course before it becomes a problem. Hmm. And if you haven't launched your business or if you are thinking about launching a new you know, course or a new product or whatever, and you're thinking about this, these brand names, try to do this exercise beforehand. That's the ideal version. Um, but it's funny to see what's out there. And there's a lot of kind of intellectual property infringement. And in some cases, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's, you know, there's not a lot of value or whatever, but these things can become big problems down the road. Intellectual property is a unique thing because it's a complex area of law, but it can, it can cost a lot of money because, you know, it's, you know, digital products and courses and and things. I mean, people can, there can be a lot of money at stake. So it's important that you know what you're doing. And in an ideal version, you, you do this exercise before, but it's really important to do it now. And I always tell people like once a quarter is a good chance, or at least at least once a year to see what's out there and make sure that you're doing your part to protect your brand. And that if you do that, if you're doing it kind of regularly, then it should be only protecting yourself against other people infringing on you and not the other way around. Yeah. That's such a good point. I need to probably do that. (laughs) I'm actually rebranding and well by the time this comes out may have changed the name of my company and I might need to really look into that a bit. So <laughs> what how hard is it to trademark a name? Well trademark is um it's more complex than I want but I'll try to like simplify it. Mm, There's basically okay. a spectrum of trademarkability from generic which is not trademarkable at all. So like I can't trademark like the best law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, to fanciful, which is like a totally made up word. So if you think about like lift, L-Y-F-T, it's not a real word. It's fanciful. It's made up. So the closer you get to fanciful, the more likely you can protect your trademark at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more likely 
it, and that's because the more unique it is, the better the argument you have that like anything that's similar is going to confuse people. And the, mm-hmm. the kind of main concept in trademark law is about confusion to the consumer. So will the consumer be confused about the origin or source of the mark as it relates to, to other marks in the, you know, in the field? So the more generic it is, the harder it's going to be to trademark. Plus the more likely if you have things that are like descriptive or suggestive, which are hard to trademark too, but they're kind of like one step up from not trademarkable, those things are more likely to run into conflicts of things that are already out there, you know, or mm-hmm. things that are already registered. And then when you go to arbitrary, arbitrary is the second most powerful. That would be like Apple is obviously a word, but before it was a computer, it didn't have anything to do with computers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like an, an arbitrary market, something that has nothing, it's a real word, but has nothing to do with the goods or services that it is provided by it. So those are kind of like, if you're, if you're trying to come up with a brand name, arbitrary or fanciful is the best way to come up with it because mm-hmm. that's the most trademarkable. Interesting. Okay. And to do, to file a trademark, is that just like a paperwork you have to end like money that you pay? Yeah. Then- <laughs> well, there's a lot to it. There's, um, I really don't, you know, it's a, there's a lot of things I tell people they can DIY that has to do with the law and the trademark is something I tell people regularly not to. And people really want to, because when you reach oh. out to lawyers, even lawyers like me, it feels very expensive. I mean, if you reach out to a traditional firm, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. If you reach out to one like me, it's kind of in the thousand to fifteen hundred dollar range but there's a reason and it's because there's a lot of research it's a very complicated area of law and the time is mostly the research to make sure that it's trademarkable to getting the right description and picking the right international class and then if there's um, an office action which is the if the USPTO has an issue with your with your mark you know and and over 60 percent of trademarks that are are filed for registration get office actions. So that's mm. true of the people who are DIYing it and also even attorneys. And if you have to do any sort of legal research to back up your, you know, your claim, then you're going to end up having to hire a lawyer too. But oftentimes people filed it wrong, like they didn't do the right description and stuff. And you can't like, there's very few things that you can change about your application once you've mm filed it. So a lot of times you have to abandon that application and start fresh if you're going to pursue it anyway. So oh, wow. definitely don't recommend, but it is a really long process. Even if everything goes perfectly well with your trademark and the USPTO has no issues with it, it's a minimum of six months from the oh, day wow. you apply to the day you get a registration. Um, so it's a long process. But you do recommend that if you have like a unique business, you should try to do it, right? Because you don't want somebody else to like basically open up a business or start using a yeah, very similar so, name or term for theirs. Right. The way that trademark law works is that it's a first in time concept. So technically, even if you don't register with the USPTO and you have a mark, you have some rights, but they're very minimal and they're very hard to prove and protect if somebody comes in after you and files the mark. And the other piece that I, people have to understand is that you can have been using a mark for 10 years, but if you don't have it registered and you're small-ish, right, you're not target, so you, people don't know you globally, and somebody comes in and registers that mark 10 years after you did, and you don't, you're not going to notice because you're probably not paying an attorney or like a third-party service to like watch trademarks because you don't even have your own then they're going to get that trademark. And now they have a legal presumption that 
it's theirs, not yours. Because if they get it registered and you're going to miss the opportunity, like there's a whole, that's why part of why it takes so long is it's public information. And so people have a chance to file an opposition, but you're never going to see that if you don't have a, you know, a registered mark anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk to you about this more later. (laughs) Interesting. Um, So I know you said like the lawyer fee can be a lot and the time can be a lot, but is it, do you actually have to pay to like actually file the paperwork? Yeah. So the actual filing fee with the USPTO is between $225 and $275 per classification. So if you have a coaching program, for example, but you also have a podcast and whatever, and, and maybe you sell uh, swag, you know, maybe you sell like shirts and mugs and whatever, all of those are going to fall into a different category. Mm. So sometimes if you did the research or if a lawyer told you, here's the seven categories that this can fit in. Well, that's seven times 225 to 275, depending on what the, um, without getting into the weeds, let's just say 275 on the conservative side. But if, you know, now that's seven times 275, well, some people are like, oh, never mind. That's a lot because <laughs> that's not even including the lawyer's fees. Right. So then sometimes people go, well, I'm just going to pick the one main, the one main thing I'm doing. You know, I'm just going to pick the coaching services as the main thing and file just for that one. So that's going to be just that one filing fee. But you have to understand that you're not protected in those other things. So somebody can go build a clothing line with the same name possibly not always mm-hmm. possibly it depends how similar it might be but with from coaching services to a clothing line almost for sure they could come in and just do that you know so right. those are the kind of things that you have to think about and those costs so there are like um kind of online things like not even just legal zoom but like there's even like you know trademark specific ones that are like file your trademark for $59 or whatever but they're rarely going to do it in like, cause they're not, there's no attorneys doing it. It's mm-hmm. just an algorithm. It's just being filed automatically. You're kind of filling in the, the details and, and you don't really know if you're getting the protection that you need. And that's why I mostly advise against it. I have actually advised people before that they can use those when they have a very specific product that fits perfectly into a classification that, that can't really be screwed up by like a cheap algorithmic mm-hmm. platform. And that is going to be your cheapest, you know, most cost-effective solution. Well, two seventy-five per like whatever brand or platform, like whatever it is, seems pretty reasonable considering like everything it can save you down the road. Well, I mean, yeah. the whole thing seems pretty reasonable and doable and like important. If you don't want someone else to come in and basically take your take your stuff, take your name and everything, so. That seems like something we should probably all look into. I think I just remember what my other question was going to be. <laughs> Did you say there's like a easyish way to look up to see if you, like the name or something you're thinking of using is already so trademarked? It's not totally easy because there's a couple of ways to search the USPTO and there's like a basic word search that makes that's quote unquote easy, but you could very well search something and it doesn't show up, but mm. it's there. You just didn't search it right. Okay. Um, but One thing I will say is when it comes to like legal complexities, the USPTO does a phenomenal job of create of like providing resources on their site of how to use their site. So people can, if you want to spend the time, if you have a few hours to like watch their videos and read their stuff about how to do things, you certainly could. It's not a guarantee you're going to get it right because you don't understand the underlying 
legal principles, but you could definitely get to a place where you could probably do a good search and know whether you have an opportunity, you know, to, to trademark something or whether you're in conflict with something that exists already. So you can go on the USPTO, it's USPTO.gov. And they have, I mean, as legal resources from government bodies go, they're by far and away the best. Okay, good to know. I'm going to put that, we'll put that in the show notes so people can easily <laughs> click over and check stuff because I don't know. I feel like that's a good thing to look into. And I mean, I guess because I started my business maybe under like my, basically my name, maybe, I don't know. It just like didn't even cross my mind. <laughs> and that's um, an important thing that people might say, because you actually can't trademark your name almost ever, like with very little I think people are always like, but um, Jay-Z and Beyonce trademark mm-hmm. their daughter's name, but it's, it's not, it's because it's not really a name. Like mm. um, you cannot trade trademark like common names and surnames. So you couldn't trademark like Deswart legal services. Right. Um, and so just something for people to know, because you were, a lot of people do, especially like in the coaching world, the educational world, people are using their name and that's great because you don't need to trademark it because you can't anyway. And people associate it with you and, and you personally. So unless you have a super common name, like, you know, Jane Doe might not be a great coaching program. Yeah. But if you're going into something that's more like a, a different type of name, it might be worth looking into. Exactly. Um, okay. Awesome. I feel like that's really helpful and just good to be thinking about. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you feel like you should share, like maybe I'm not even thinking to ask something that people should know. About. I think, well, I think that you kind of, that's what I would say is that just that the law doesn't have to be scary or overwhelming. And there are a lot of people like me out there that are working to get as much access to information as possible so that small businesses can be more successful. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to make changes as you go. It's kind of like the way I see the law is like a series of guideposts and it helps you along the way and it can get you back on track if you get lost or get into trouble. And lawyers are kind of built to give you worst case scenarios. And so it sounds really scary when we (laughs) talk about it, but you also have, you know, to think about your level of risk tolerance about the industry you're working in. You know, like if you told me you're going to start a baby you know, a baby product line, and you're just going to operate as a sole proprietor, and you don't really need anything, I'd tell you to think twice and to Mm -hmm. form an entity and to get liability insurance, because that's a high liability area. But a lot of the people I work with, it's like, oh, I'm a freelance web designer, I'm a business coach, I'm a, you know, starting e commerce site, those are generally low liability industries. And so you can kind of start out with just put one foot in front of the other and kind of see where it goes and build as you go. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, awesome. Yeah. So first and foremost, um, I know you do have a lot of templates on your website, so I want to make sure we share that so people can know that they can go there to find a lot of information and materials that they can basically buy just immediately, right? For an immediate download from your website, if there's stuff like that, that they need. Yes. It's actually a template shop is in, I mean, it's live and it exists, but it's in the process of a big overhaul. Not only are there going to be a lot more that still just haven't gone up, but I think that what I found in a lot of the feedback is that, you know, we talked about this at the very beginning is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So so it's going to be bundled by industry and kind of 
job types so that people can kind of go, oh, I'm a photographer. Okay, here's the 10 documents that might be applicable. Okay, well, I already have a privacy policy, so I don't need that. You know, oh, I, I have an independent contractor agreement, but you know, I, I never used a client service agreement. So it kind of makes it easy for people to see exactly what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did actually just launch um, the Creatives Guide to a Legally Legit Business, which is kind of specific to creative industries, though it really applies to most small businesses. Um, and it's meant to be a guide kind of like what you said. It's like, I don't know. I don't even know what to ask. So it's kind of like it hits all those major aspects of starting and running a business and what you need to be thinking about. So it talks about key terms to have in contracts with and different contracts need different key terms. So it talks about all those things. It talks about the different entity types and why you might choose them. It gives a full breakdown on like trademark and copyright things for you to consider how and when and why you might trademark or copyright, you know, file for a registered copyright, social media rules, rules about promoting your business and selling on social media, um, kind of running online businesses. So it kind of hits all of those pieces. And then it includes like a checklist. So you can kind of see where, where you might need to fill in the gaps. Amazing. That sounds awesome. Cool. So let's wrap up by asking the things I always like to share, which are what is one thing that you wish you'd known more about when you first began your business? (laughs) I think the funny thing is, is my forte is really, I mean, besides the law is operations, but I wish I had spent more time understanding and investing in like platforms and processes that would help me be more efficient. I think it's become a really big pain point for me. And I think that at the time I felt like, I don't really know where I'm going. So I couldn't settle on like paying for platforms if I didn't know if I'm going to need them. But now it's also piecemeal. So I'm in the process of trying to look at the various platforms to see if there's like a way to consolidate them. And it's been such a time suck, not just doing the research, but like using all the different things that I'm using. And so I wish I had really invested in that earlier in my business. Yeah. But you were probably like, well, this is just something I'm kind of doing on the side. And like, totally. I feel like that happens, totally. to, uh, that happens easily when you kind of start up almost by accident or like <laughs> without the intention of taking it as big as it ends up becoming. Yes. And it's like, oh, whoops, like this would have been easier if I had implemented these things from the beginning, but you had no idea. Totally. Um, and so, and is there one thing that you would, would like to share with other entrepreneurs? So I am kind of known for giving the opposite information of like what a lot of the big names in the entrepreneurial world say there's Ooh, a I love it. go for it mentality. And like, if you don't leap, you'll never know how far <laughs> you can jump. And I'm like, I mean, listen, I'm risk averse. We talked about this. Mm-hmm, you're a planner. I'm really about starting to do it in the safe way, you know, starting and running a business takes a lot of work and a lot of risk. And I personally spent years side hustling and making, you know, financial goals and saving to build that kind of buffer because it felt reckless to me to just quote, take the leap, you know, mm-hmm. and some people don't have that cushion, like a second income in the family that can cover you. I actually did. And it still didn't mean that I needed to jump, jump in head first. And I think that I've seen a lot this, I see this a lot with entrepreneurs who are like super gung ho, they jump in the deep end, but you know, within a few months, they're like swimming to the side and hopping out of the pool because Mm -hmm. they're looking for a full-time job again, because they didn't anticipate how long it would take to, you know, gain momentum, to make enough money. And I think that like my advice is it's okay to take the slow path. It's okay to do it the safe way. You can be risk averse and an entrepreneur. Those are not mutually exclusive. 
And it might not be like as sexy a story, but if it ultimately helps you start and run a successful business, does it really matter? Mm, That's so good. Yeah. Yes. I'm definitely a very much like just get started and figure it out as you go type of person, but (laughs) I love that perspective. And I also totally agree. I see that all the time too. People who just jump right in and they're like miss entrepreneur for a while. And then you're like, wait, how are you telling people what to do already? You've only been doing this for two or three months. And then like by month four, they're like gone, like right from them again. Yeah. Cause like they didn't know what they were doing and didn't realize it was going to, as you said, it takes time, it takes Absolutely. time to figure it all out and get it all going. And if you're not going to, yeah, if you're not ready to put that in, then. Yeah. I mean, and if you're not, you know, uh, financially and, and mentally and emotionally prepared to, to let that take time. I think that's really the, you know, the key. So I'm yeah. all about, I'm all about the safe, the safe path. I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Thank so yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, oh, tell, so we mentioned the website, but tell people where they can find you, how they can connect with you and where they can find all of those things. Yeah. Uh, the website is notyourfatherslawyer.com and you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at notyourfatherslawyer and, uh, mostly on Instagram, frankly. (laughs) Okay. And if people do go to the website and they're not sure what template to get, or they want something beyond like the templated things, they can just Mm -hmm. email you to. Yeah. There's contact forms and, and email access. And, you know, I do, I do also do free consultations. So People can kind of get, I do a lot of those kind of, I don't know where to go from here. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I like, oh my gosh. If you're listening to this and you don't, don't put in a call for a free consultation (laughs) with Karen right now, like, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I feel like anybody could benefit from that and figure out what you need. And you'll probably have recommendations of at least a couple of things that they should really be doing once you... Yeah. I mean, and a lot of it is, I feel like sometimes people don't do a free consultation because they're like, I know what they're going to tell me. They're going to tell me to spend all this money. And the truth is that, I mean, there's rarely like, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with somebody that where I said like, no, you're doing everything perfectly. You're great to go. I mean, I'm not even, I'm a corporate lawyer and even not my business needs, you know, work, (laughs) but, but there is a lot of convert. There are a lot of conversations that I do have that says, you know, Hey, this is great. You're in great shape right now. Here's some things to consider as you grow or if you mm-hmm. get there or when you are ready. And then you're just armed with the information as you go forward. So it doesn't mean that you have to take action or spend money or you know anything like that right this second. Yeah. It's always good to have a sense at least of what you might be working towards or what you might want to be thinking about getting ready to figure out or spend money on later on or budget for as you're growing. So yeah, I think being informed is just so important. So that is amazing and wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all of these things. Thank you so much for having me better having heard about (laughs) this. Well, that's good. I'd feel bad if you were feeling worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm feeling worse. I feel like I have work to do, but, (laughs) but again, I feel better feeling informed. So (laughs) we'll definitely be talking more soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to Quotable, a female millennial entrepreneur podcast, so you won't miss the next episode and leave a review on iTunes so other people will be able to find us easily. Also, don't be shy to get in touch with me or anyone you heard on this show. We're all about connecting and our Instagram handles and contact links are always in the show notes. 
If you have questions or ideas for a future episode, or you want to submit a guest or to see those show notes, you can do all of that online at quotablemediaco.com slash podcast. One other thing, join other listeners on Facebook and Instagram by searching female millennial entrepreneurs and joining us there. Talk to you soon and see you there.